seven, six, five. This is 542 in the Blue. Podcast discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher. Background music. Hard-boiled. Performed by Kevin McLeod. Used per common licensee. Today's shade of blue story. Did the preacher kill his wife? Or was it suicide? Did the forensics in the 1800s say it couldn't have been suicide, and she died at the hands of an angry husband? What did the court think? What did the juries think? What do you think? Listen and decide. 2. 1. Scott, you're on. Thank you, Victoria, for starting us out. As Victoria said, we have in today's Shade of Blue an unfortunate situation for a mother who was found dead by her 11-year-old daughter. And the question is, did she kill herself? Did she die of natural causes? Or was she murdered? The authorities were contacted at that time in a coroner's jury, as was the procedure back then, was convened. Reviewing the information they had on hand, they agreed it must have been a suicide. The victim, Mrs. Budge, was soon buried quickly after the coroner's jury had convened and came up with their ruling. It's just a quick conclusion to an unpleasant event. Really, a conclusion or just part of an argument that would go on for years and years and even span into different countries, which is actually what happened this time. In 1849, our deceased, Priscilla Budge, and the Reverend Henry Budge and his wife Priscilla, they came to America from England with a three-year-old son, Henry. Ten years later, they were living in Lion Falls, New York, uh, with six children, ranging in age from 2 to 13. That's a lot of kids. Though she had help from her 11-year-old daughter, also named Priscilla, Miss Budge appeared to be breaking under the strain of raising six kids. Also understandable. The children would later testify that their parents were constantly arguing and mom would berate her husband for coming home late and spending too much time away from the family. Now, Miss Bunch had grown up in a wealthy family in England, but apparently was disowned by the wealthy family, the head of the family, her father, when she had married Henry the Preacher. Apparently this was not appropriate. Daddy didn't approve. Now, in the United States, once they came here, Miss Miss Bunge found it difficult to adjust. She went from a well-off English family life to the wife of a poor preacher in a foreign country, a foreign country that many of her peers, as she was growing up, considered uncivilized. Yeah, the United States was considered uncivilized back then. Or maybe still, I don't know. In 1859, the preacher and his wife no longer slept in the same bedroom. 
In addition to constantly fighting in her hut with her husband, Priscilla was born to fits of what was called at the time derangement. Do you like that term? She was acting all crazy? No, she was acting all deranged. On December 10th, Priscilla wrote a letter to her sister in England and gave it to a next-door neighbor child, an Emma Gould, a local girl from the neighborhood, and asked her to mail it. Now, the daughter, the 11-year-old daughter, was not quite sure what was in the letter, but she had overheard her mother read it aloud, and she said that the letter was just not right. Now, what that means, I don't know. She went to her neighbor uh, friend, Emma, and asked her for the letter back, wanting to stop some family gossip from happening. Now, Emma refused to give it to her and said she was promised that she'd take it to the mailroom and have it mailed. Now, the daughter went and told her father, who went and got the letter back from Emma somehow. Uh, she later testified that the preacher told her that, quote, that his troubles had been as they were for 11 years and that he would not endure it for six hours if it weren't for his children. Interesting statement there. The next morning, Priscilla was found in her bed with her throat slashed. Not really a common way for people to kill themselves. The preacher said he never went into the bedroom himself, but relied on the neighbors and his children to describe the scene. Sending your kids into the death scene, that's terrible. He told neighbors it must have been suicide and when they came back out, and when they were unsure, he told them to go back in. Keep looking! And finally, of course, they found a weapon. They found a straight razor lying near the bed, near her hand. Interesting, don't you think? No weapon at first, so he told them to go back and check again, and then they found it? Coroner's jury was convened, like we said earlier, and Priscilla's body was examined. The court ruled it death by suicide, and Priscilla was buried. Now, as time goes on, as it does, rumors, as they do, start up and Priscilla and the preacher's marital problems and some of the right Reverend Budge's possible infidelities came to surface. Now to help this along, the Honorable Caleb Lynn, former U.S. Congressman from New York, who would actually end up later being the governor of Idaho Territory, he published a pamphlet on the information. And I guess pamphlets were probably the first Facebook pages or Twitter. There were also a number of inconsistencies in the physical evidence and descriptions of the crime scene, which led the local DA to get a court order and exhume the body for further examination. Now, having been underground through the winter, there was very little decomposition in the corpse, apparently, according to the report. The body was examined by a team of physicians led by a Dr. John Swineborn, who would later be mayor of Albany, New York, and later still a United States congressman from New York. 
What they found appeared to contradict the notion that Priscilla had cut her own throat. Preachers seem to have a problem with former congressmen for some reason. Uh, they keep popping up in his life. The new exam showed the wound was five and a half inches long and as deep as the vertebrae. Though an artery was severed, there actually had been no spurting of blood as would have occurred if it had been cut while she was living. And yeah, I can attest to the bacterial blood behavior. The heart is a powerful pump and it can send blood a good distance if you are an arterial bleeder. In fact, only about a quart of blood was found outside the body, much less than if the artery had been cut while the heart was still beating, according to Dr. Swingood. Also, the nature of the cut was inconsistent with the razor and the slash that had been done. It appeared to have been made by stabbing into the right side of the neck and up through the left part of the throat. It was also deep enough and strong enough to actually slice part of the vertebrae, which according to the doctor and his other and other examinations would have damaged the razor. The razor at the scene was not damaged at all and it had surprisingly little blood on it. Her lungs were filled with fluid, which would be consistent with asphyxiation, but not with a cut throat. Dr. Swanborn concluded that Miss Budge had been strangled to death, then cut in the throat with a sharp weapon after death to make it look like suicide. And then a second razor ended up being found at the crime scene after a second look. A second inquest was held and Dr. Swanborn was on the witness stand for 22 consecutive hours. And in the end, the Reverend Henry Budge was charged with the murder of his wife. Budge's attorney went before a judge on a writ of habeas corpus and Budge was released on the grounds that the second inquest was illegal. Double jeopardy. A month later, the case was brought before a grand jury of Lewis County, New York, but only 11 of the 12 jurors were in favor of indictment. The following September, the case was brought to another grand jury, and this time they did indict him for murder. And the trial began in August of 1861. The prosecution called witnesses to include the children to testify to the ongoing marital difficulties between mother and dad, the defense countered with witnesses of their own who testified to mom's, quote, insanity. But the bulk of testimony consisted of detailed medical opinions as to whether or not Priscilla was alive when her throat was cut and whether, given the position of the body, anyone else could have cut her throat. The medical testimony went on for weeks until during the testimony of a Professor Valentin Mote, M-O-T-T, -T, of New York, who agreed with the findings of the other doctors. 
The reverend's attorneys moved that the charges against his client be dropped. This is in the middle of this doctor testifying about what he sees. Now, the judge on the bench at the time was a Judge Allen, and he ended up ruling that while the circumstances made a strong case for judicial investigation, the defense had shown qualifying circumstances as to how the fluid might have gotten into the body and the lungs filled without asphyxiation. He is quoted as saying, it is not for me to say that the case shall close. There are circumstances that might be forcibly urged to the jury, but it strikes me that as the case stands, it is only a balance of probabilities in which it would be unsafe to convict in view of the facts that these doubts have arisen, the prisoner is entitled to the benefit of them and should be released. The case was suddenly stopped in the middle of this testimony before closing arguments and was sent to a jury. And the judge brought his directions to the jury and guess what? The verdict was not guilty. Now, what does this mean? Well, apparently in the judge's court, forensic evidence didn't really mean much of anything. Of course, we're talking 1861. And there is a interesting side note that when the case was so abruptly brought to a close, Dr. Mott, who had been testi testifying and had been interrupted, he said, it was said that turning to Judge Allen, he remarked in a quiet voice, I would like to explain. But the judge stopped him and said, it is too late now. But I do not believe that poor woman ever killed herself, said the doctor. And the judge looked at him and said, neither do I. Yet he turned him loose. Though the verdict could not be altered, the case was pretty much effectively tried once more. Following his acquittal, the preacher sued Caleb Lyon for libel because the verses he had written in his pamphlet had charged the great reverend with murdering his wife and having criminal intercourse with other women and other charges were held up to ridicule and injure his good name. The right reverend wanted $20,000 in damages. Now Caleb wanted to prove that he had good reason to think that the good, that the good preacher had killed his wife, so the liable case ended up basically being a replay of the Budge's murder trial. Many of the same witnesses were called and Dr. John Swineberg handled the medical testimony with additional evidence that was, was not included in the first trial because of Judge Allen's abrupt ruling. Lyon was found guilty of liable, but he was only fined $100 instead of $20,000 that he was asking for. The trial also gave uh, Swineborn the opportunity to publish a book. 
a review of the case, the people against, against Henry Budge, indicted for the murder of his wife Priscilla, which included evidence from both trials. Swinborne never believed that the Reverend had gotten. Swinborne never believed that the possibilities of the case were equally balanced. And that he, well, he did not hesitate to assert in his writings that the Reverend Budge had gotten away with murder. The book was well-reasoned, very well illustrated, and refuted the defense claim that due to the position of the body and the arrangement of the room, no one but the victim could have cut her own throat. And this book is still available. You can buy it on Amazon. It's an interesting read if you've got the time. After his trial, Henry moved his family to a church in Beverly, New Jersey. Dr. Swinborn tracked his movements, sent a copy of his findings in his book to several prominent people in the town. As a matter of fact, the doctor, every time the preacher moved, flooded the area with copies of his books and information to the, all the prominent people that he could get a hold of wherever the Reverend went to. Because of this, you know, the Reverend Preacher couldn't get away or settle down anywhere for very long. He traveled further and further west, opening up churches and ministering to several congregations before settling down in California where he founded a church. Uh, then he disappeared was found by the good doctor, Dr. Swinborg, that he had reburied and moved to Australia. The doctor had sent the information he could to various locations in Australia, and it's really unclear what happened at that point. But doing some further research, and with the help of a Mr. Reed, the church historian from Beverly Presbyterian Church in New Jersey, he was able to track Henry around Australia at several religious locations and eventually found where he had returned to the United States. Apparently the good doctor had quit pursuing him at that point for whatever reason. He did a visit around the country with his adult children, did some traveling, and there's apparently a couple of photographs of him as well at various locations. Now, after his visit to the United States, he returned to Australia with his young wife, where he later died of dementia, approximately in 1909. So, so what we have here is, did the preacher do it, or did Priscilla do herself? Apparently, the information was very strong, and strong enough that the good doctor Dr. Swinborn thought that the public needed to be aware of this particular preacher and his activities. It's interesting. It reminds me of several trials. Perhaps maybe while listening to the story, you thought of the O.J. Simpson trial, where Mr. Simpson was found not guilty, yet in a civil trial, he was found guilty. So there's something for you to think about with this shade of blue. 
Until next Saturday, when I'll be back with another Shade of Blue story that I hope you might find of interest. If you're curious about this podcast or other stories or even my books, you can check them out at scottlunsfordauthor.com or at 542intheblue.com. Be happy to hear from you. You can contact me through those web pages as well. And in the meantime, throughout the coming week, remember, try to be safe and be secure. And if you have the opportunity, I highly recommend doing something nice for somebody. It'll make you feel good and definitely help somebody else out. Victoria, I'm going to switch the board over to you. Close us out and we'll talk to everybody next week. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to 542 and the Blue. Discussions of law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information go to scottlunsfordauthor.com or 542andtheblue.com. Links to the podcast, information on Scott's books, and how to contact us, can be found there. This is Victoria, your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. End.